Hello, this podcast is brought to you by caves. Caves are land formations that can serve as a shelter for human beings or animals, um, and they are available wherever water is carved out a space in the earth. Uh, what results is essentially a house that is free to live in. To find a free cave to live in near you, visit www.blm.com gov www.blm.gov that stands for bureau of land management not black lives matter visit blm.gov to find a free cave near you today thank you um thank you caves for sponsoring this podcast this is down by the river i'm terrence hartnett your host um and uh, we're we're pushing on with caveman week that's right it's troglodyte week here at down by the river um today uh, my guest is marlo marlo is an author and a man who lives in a cave uh, i met marlo at a coffee shop in moab utah it's a place i would go to plug in my computer uh, to get power and internet to edit this podcast and to do all the things you need to do with the computer and um i was trying to plug myself in and uh he was there he had his own extension cord and he offered me um a hit uh, off his extension cord we got to talking and um he had sort of a he had a recumbent bicycle with a trailer behind it and an old greyhound dog and um we just got to talking about moab and what was going on around there and uh he told me he was a writer and uh at that point right away i was like i want to have this guy on the podcast i was short on guests um i also met uh kelsey in moab um and so in moab i was i didn't know i don't know anybody i don't have any friends or friends of friends in moab so i was uh looking for guests and marlo came into my life at the exact right time um i asked him before i knew he was a good author i knew he was an author <laughs> uh and i was interested in the cave thing and so I went based on that. I was like, this will be a good guy to talk to. But I ended up going to his website and looking at his book. The night before I went to talk to him, I was like, I want to be able to read some of his book just so I'm informed about the kind of writing he had. And I was like sucked into his novel right away. The novel I read was called Island Despair and it details um, a character's time on an island in Alaska. The character is named Marlo and it is uh, a semi-autobiographical work of what he calls unfiction. We talk about unfiction a little bit in the podcast, and um, it was really good. <laughs> I was going to read a chapter and uh, in BS the rest of it, as um, an English major like me is uh, want to do, and I ended up getting sucked in and reading it like all night and then most of the next morning. Um, yeah, it's a great book. They're available for free in PDF form, but you can also order these amazing handmade copies that are like bound with rope that he makes himself. He handmade by Marlowe. Anyway, Marlowe, he was a great guy. He lived in a cave. He was moving to a hostel to camp outside of a hostel um, for another small fee um, uh, at the time of the interview. And he was just a great, we had a great talk. Um, we had another, we had another great week on the podcast. Thanks a lot for everyone. Uh, we have two more reviews. Um, thank you to um, I think it's Tim Myers. Thanks, Tim Myers. Um, and M Brendan somebody. It could be, maybe it's Brendan Gay. I'm not sure. Um, but thank you to both of those reviewers. These all help uh, get the podcast moved up in people's algorithms. 
and whatnot. Um, also, if if you are uh, a female identifying person, you could be the first female identifying reviewer of Down by the River. That is a mantle that is readily available to you. So just just consider that. Um, consider reviewing the podcast. And thank you to everybody who did. Um, and I, again, again, I appreciate all the response um, for the pod. Um, before I get into the interview, we were conducting this interview at the same coffee shop we met at and in the first eight to ten minutes there's a truck there's a truck there's a truck making noise and i did some editing i'm the editor and producer of this podcast i did some editing to try to quiet it down um but rest assured the truck goes away and so does the noise so um just power through or you know if you hate it just fast forward Fast forward it anytime you want to. I give you permission to do that, by the way. If there's anything you don't like, I leave basically everything in. I edit out if there's long pauses or something terrible. Uh, I edit it out, but um, it, this is as is. The conversation is full length. So if you don't like any part of it, just go ahead and fast forward. And you're the editor. Congratulate. You've been promoted to editor. Um, go ahead and fast forward through anything you don't like. I do it all the time with podcasts I listen to. Anyway. Um, thank you for listening. Enjoy this conversation with Marlo. Take it away, Steve. Down, down, down by the river. <laughs> it's cold. I'll it is cold. Shivering. It, yeah, I, sw- I swear, in my hometown in upstate New York, it's 68 degrees today. Oh, wow. And I left there in order to be in the warm desert so I could sleep in my van. Right. And it uh, turns out my plot was foiled, you know? they. I'm seeing all these pictures of people enjoying the outside. Right, right. We're what in happened? a warming trend. It, it'll be in the 50s next week. Okay. Yeah, that's what... And how bad does it get? Does it get down to this cold? Like, is this is about as bad as it's going to no, get? No, no, no. It... it we can get a, an inversion that keeps the cold air trapped, and it can stay in the 30s for, you know, it's the daytime high for weeks. For oh, a my month. God. Yeah. Not every winter. It's just it's a thing that happens. But it can also get the nighttime lows can be down in the teens. Here. And that's tough. And, well, and uh, how do you deal with that? Is somebody, you, you sleep outside? I sleep in a tent. Sleep in a tent. Sorry. Which, which has a heater. Oh, really? You know, at the hostel, I plug in to electricity, so I have a heater. Oh, that's great. If I'm out in the bush somewhere, I have a what's called a Norwegian tent heater, which runs on isopropyl alcohol. Oh, really? Leave it to the Norwegians <laughs> to come up with a thing like that. But it's totally uh, adequate. I mean, I can make the tent 100 degrees if I want, if I turn it on. So it's, it bur- it's burning alcohol in the tent, and that warms it up? Like, is yeah, there, and there's no danger of a fire or anything? No. It's a uh, a solid, heavy, squat sort of construction that it, it would be. You would really have to hit it to tip it over. And even if you did that, it probably would just go out. Okay. Yeah. It's a flame that. There is some concern with off-gassing. That's why you use it in a tent. You don't want to seal it up too tight. There, okay. It doesn't burn perfectly. It's carbureted and burns pretty cleanly, but but there are some fumes. Yes. Um, okay, so off, off gassing, you said that's gas that's or, not being burned, it's leaking into your correct. In, tent. Correct, incomplete combustion, you know, there, there's some of that. But it's not, people use them to heat, uh, it's called a marine heater, so you would use it to heat a boat's cabin, okay. which, which are sealed up pretty tight. Okay. But it, yeah, it's a, it's a perfectly reasonable thing. And you have an alcohol one for the bush and for the cave. So you lived, I, when, I, when I, first, I first met you, you told me you lived in a cave. Well, 
let's just say I camped in a tent that happened to be pitched in a cave. <laughs> the I tent is the shelter. Yeah, yeah, the tent is the shelter to keep things clean and organized. Yeah. Uh, it just happened to be in this cave down King Creek, you know. Down King Creek, and it's owned, but you, you have like a landlord. The guy owns the cave. Correct. There's a wealthy individual in town who owns a lot of that land along the river, <laughs> and uh, he just sold a big chunk along the bottom, bottom near the river for a, um, a, a campground extension. I think they're just expanding okay. a campground. Right, but he owns the, what we call the cliff side, which is away from the river. Uh, and there's a number of people paying rent to him. Do you have a little neighborhood there? Uh, People ne live nearby? Yeah, loose, loose. It's all spread out along uh, several miles of the river. But, um, yeah, nobody really talks to each other that much. So okay. Some visit, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I heard you told me the cave was like as big as an airplane hangar. Is that right? Yeah, you could you could park a couple of F-15s in there. <laughs> no, really, it's, uh, it's very, you know, it's hard to describe. It, it's been um, squared off, so it's very... Um, rectilinear and it's been gravelized to keep the the red sand dust down so you have some gravel dust but it's it's very clean and it's spare yeah there's not much in there yeah and uh you sleep out in the tent and you do have a pad because you're not right in the gravel you have some sort of pad to lie on oh yeah i have a tr uh when i'm sleeping this way i have a, a nice trifold you know a cot thick not oh, a cot but it's a pad a trifold kind of yeah, it's totally comfortable. Nice. Yeah, it's not. It's not like a thermal rest that you would take backpacking or something. Okay. Which is that, that's what I would do if I was traveling. But it's a little yeah. bigger. You can put it on the bike rig. Yeah, you can spread out a little bit more. Yeah. yeah. And it just stays in the tent. It's not a traveling thing at all. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when you're when you're staying, because you're a writer, when you're staying in the cave, when you're when you're living in this way in the tent, um, how are you how are you getting writing done? Where are you writing? So. Having the, the tent out away from town is sort of the optimum setup for me. This is, I've discovered when I've lived in different towns in the Intermountain West, this is what I like. I like living out in kind of a natural setting away from the, uh, the human, human built environment so that there's wildlife and you know more exposure to the natural elements and weather and so forth but then i like to be able to be able to bike into town every day i come in every day every day yeah and um and then access the culture of whatever's going on in the town the library the coffee houses the uh the public spaces you know the the scene you know which is right here it's kind of a scene but the the lizard is a scene and there's a uh, some of the bike shops are kind of seen, you know What's well, the I mean, lizard? That's the Lazy Lizard Hostel. Okay. Yeah. Oh, so that's where you're staying now. So yeah, you yeah. recently moved this right, past right, weekend. You right. moved from the cave to the hostel. Right, for the winter. For the right, winter because right. it's got like shelter, more more shelter. Well, because of the COVID situation, I had no place to write in the afternoons once okay. it got cold. Yeah. So now that I'm back there, if all else fails, like today I'm not quite sure what I'm going to do. I um, it's too cold to me for me to sit out here and write. I know. And everything else is shut down. Yeah. The library is appointment only. I thought about getting a, like a room at the library, like a study room would be good for something like this, like yeah, a, yeah, like a yeah. small room we could be in. They but have that actually. They have that, but they have they say they have thirty minute appointments for all library business. Right. An appointment only, and you could pick up stuff and then leave. It's all it's very much controlled. Which I guess I don't know. Is it because Moab has got so much outdoor space that usually it's totally fine to be outdoors that they're that they're shut they're shut down more than even than New York is right now. I guess that's true. Yeah. Uh -huh. um, so it's a little bit of a problem. So that that was the main impetus for going back to the Lizard was that I knew that if I couldn't find a location downtown, I could just 
hiking on back up and just right in my tent or right in one of the buildings you know, have they have spaces like yeah, community spaces you yeah, can yeah, be yeah, in. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah which is a but that's not my preference when i come downtown i really like to stay all day so i have a, a friend who's the maintenance guy over at mcstiff's plaza right a block over and um he thinks he might be able to let me just use his maintenance shed to write in. He's a good oh, pal great. of mine. So oh, great. So I'll check with him here. In a the maintenance bit. shed of what? Uh, they call it McStiff's Plaza because it was McStiff's restaurant, but it just sold, so it's no longer. Okay, right. I don't even know if it's McStiff's <laughs> Plaza. Eddie McStiff used to own it. <laughs> yeah, the joke there, the, the waiters at the restaurant would always say, curses, McStiffed again. <laughs> yeah, <that's, laughs> that was the joke. And that's just good, clean fun, of course. Yeah. McStiffed, yeah. Yeah. What a name, Nick Stift. Nick Stift, yeah. Um, so you're a writer. How long? So you wrote, yeah, you, read, you wrote um, Island Despair, which I read last night, which is it's such a great book. Um, and you said you wrote that a long time ago. How long ago did you write that book? 20 years. 20 years ago? I'm 63. I started writing that book when I was about 30. I just okay. come back to the lower 48 from Alaska. And I wrote what I thought was a complete version. It was only maybe a 30-page story. And it kicked around that way for a while, then it got expanded on. And I, 10 years later, you know, I'd gone on to work on other things, but 10 years later I was doing an open mic reading in San Francisco with Island Despair. Just of the story? Of those, yeah, just one of those things at a bar, you know, that, there's a lot of that. Oh, yeah. There used to be a lot Com of that. Comedians do the same thing, yeah, yeah. open mics and bars. Yep. And, uh, and I was approached by uh, Freedom Voices, the publishing company, who mostly published street poets and tenderloin kind of writers, you know, and uh, they weren't really interested in a guy from Wyoming. That's where I was from at the time. And, uh, and I think another year or two went by and they and they contacted me and said they were doing some joint projects with City Lights books, you know, the Beat Poet book. Yeah. And uh, we're where, is the, where is City Lights? Because I've heard it's of it. North but, Beach. Okay. San Francisco, North Beach. Yeah, it's Kerouac. And yes, Pittsburgh, yes, right? yes. That's, that's why I've right. heard of it in the context of the Beats. Great bookstore. Yes. Um, and they were expanding their their range so they would be uh, more open to a out of state out of city writer so that that started a process of getting island despair edited and really honed and uh, and then yeah and then they they published it in a small press way congratulations yeah it was good i went and did a you know a, a tour and around the city and read at different places where was your life at at that point you're 43 is that a, is that yeah, right? I was in my early 40s at that time. Yeah. yeah. And what, what was what was the what was happening in your life at that point? Were you, did you have a, did you work? Were you working? Uh, was, were you living? Uh, I was living uh, summers on a horse ranch in Wyoming. I was uh, working as a cook and a horse packer. Uh, it was for an outdoor school. What's a horse packer? Packing like a load? Uh, yeah, packing. The... We were packing rations into uh, backpacking and mountaineering expeditions in the Wind River Range. And uh, it was part of a, it was a uh, part of an outdoor education program that goes on up there, right? So, and then I was also cook at the ranch, so doing that and writing. You know, I was still writing. You're writing. Yeah, working. And how did your life change at that point when you when you got published? Oh no, what change. happened? <laughs> yeah, it wasn't. You know, I might have made a thousand dollars off of Island Despair total. So. Oh man. No changes. I'm sorry. Well, that's no, okay. The movie rights. Who knows? You know what I mean? You never. Yeah, you never know. Right. Yeah, yeah. You could have Timothy Chalamet playing the main character. You know, who I, knows? Yeah. <laughs> who knows? Um, no changes that way, but it was, of course reaffirming to be published of course yeah the validation closure. of it validation yeah thank you yeah and uh but but then i kind of screwed up you know when i uh 
Freedom Voices sat me down when the book was coming up. They said, now, Marla, we've put a lot of time and energy into your little book, and we're going to all make a little bit of money. We won't make a lot of money. This is a small press. And we would really like to see another book in in a reasonable amount of time, three years, four years, two years. <laughs> and I, um, I just kind of screwed up. I got distracted. I uh, got involved in the independent film scene of around San Francisco okay. and East Bay and uh, I was doing um, some scripts and script consulting and voiceovers and treatments and things and uh, and still working on some longer novels and time went by, 10 years went by and Ten I years didn't went have by. anything to show for it <laughs> and they, Freedom Voices reluctantly just kind of dropped me. I think they still carry Island Despair in their catalog but they were they no longer saw me as in their stable of contributing writers so i'm there's I'm, a more a lesson in that story right? i was yeah because I, I thought there was more Cause when, you, when you said mentioned that when i first met you you said yeah f i published the first book second book i got distracted and my mind went to like okay drugs or some sort no, of exciting no, life thing but i'm hearing independent film was the distraction scripts and voice acting voiceover voiceover writing voiceover and i got paid for some of this work and a lot of it was just on spec and on most of those movies i'm not sure if any of them ever were completed you know it's just a testimony to how many movies just flounder in pre-production oh yeah these are all independent filmmakers it's that, a feat it's a feat to get yeah. any movie made even with the studio behind it but then when you have to depend on your friends and you have to yeah. depend on people to work for free yeah um all kinds of stuff just kind of just kind of flames out sure. you know of course yeah. um that's and that's the way that went and also i was traveling fairly relentlessly uh, during that era so traveling is not writing traveling is its own thing yeah and, um i don't know the, the real lesson was that you know i should have stayed focused on the next book and just done yeah. that yeah but um i don't know you have errors in your life when you want to say yes to things and i i did that in my 40s and film is exciting and it's kind of sexy and some things could have worked out. They just of course, didn't. of course, and yeah, it could have been the right I, bet. Yeah, yeah. I just eventually cut my losses and came back to the Intermountain, back out to the Rockies. Essentially, I was okay. living in Jackson, 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 Wyoming. Wyoming. Nice. And, um, and you're from Wyoming originally. No, I'm no. Okay, Virginia. so okay, you're from Wyoming as an adult. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. We're from Virginia originally. Yeah, because I'm curious about because you have you have this travel deliberately is kind of your brand, kind of your the idea, the philosophy behind what you seem to be doing with your life, um, uh, and the idea. How would you how would you summarize that idea? I don't want to summarize it for you. How would you summarize well, the I, philosophy? Well, I, I try to spell it out on the website that yeah. it's all of us like to travel, and we there's a certain modern concept of what that is to just kind of sightsee and do things that are kind of distracting eat out eat out and drink coffee in a different place every day you know that's traveling yeah but i i like to see people take it a step further what's worked for me is to render the traveling experience in some sort of artistic form for me it's writing but it yeah. could be anything it could be yeah. photography or music or um painting or something but i just think that that um forces the traveler to engage a little bit more with the experience they've had and 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 to communicate that to others which i think if you have the privilege to travel it's sort of incumbent upon you to render that experience yeah. not just have it have it be a fleeting thing that passes and you know it's whatever you want to do with yourself but uh 
that's the concept of traveling deliberately is to you know it comes to from, share it. it comes from Thoreau's live deliberately live deliberately from Walden yeah you know, yeah he was big on that he went to the woods to live deliberately that's what he went to the woods for yeah, to exactly. live deliberately right yeah and, um, so yeah. it seems as though your Alaska the, the Alaska period of your life has been the most rendered into writing uh, as opposed to your Moab period of your life your Jackson your San Francisco period of your life is that fair to say fair to say because the only two books I've completed are Island Despair and <laughs> Wet Exit yes Wet Exit which is a longer three-part novel but it just happens to take place in Alaska also on a sea kayaking expedition yeah right so uh, why would you why why Alaska what, yeah, what happened it just there kind of hap- you know as I began to find my voice and in, in, in my format it just happened that the Alaska experience was the most the things that I'd done most recently and were the most vivid in my mind so I could have picked other things I'm working on a another lengthy book now called Geyser Rush which is about Yellowstone which was um, a place I lived and worked well prior to Alaska, 10 years before ever going to Alaska. It just happened that the Alaska books got kicked off first, so. But now I'm, I'm on to a different thing. So it's not a specific weight of the Alaska period of your life. It wasn't especially weighty. Although Alaska is exciting in itself. It's got sort of an allure of like yeah, yeah. the climate's different, the days are, the way the night and day shift and all that stuff, it's remote. I mean, all that's pointed out in Island Despair. Like it's. Uh, there's an allure to it. Yes. Yeah. Well, Alaska has a mystique yeah. in the American mind, particularly that's almost not equaled by any other state. There's just it's Jack London, it's uh, you know the Gold Rush, it's all the the Klondike, all these things that are wrapped up that you know, have created this kind of mystique. A lot of it's false and it's just kind of made <laughs> up. But and uh, yeah, I mean that's kind of what draws young people to Alaska. And then I went up there and had things experiences that were very different from what are considered traditional Alaska narratives but yeah uh-huh. so yeah the 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 book that you wrote about it is called a you call it a work of unfiction yeah that's just kind of a cutesy made up thing to it is cute yeah <laughs> it, it's the fact that uh, the book is about 60% true and about 40% fiction okay you know um, in fact, when I wrote it originally, I used all the uh, actual names of the characters. Oh, really? And then when, <laughs> when it was going to be published, I mentioned that to the publisher, and they said, well, you, you have to change the names. <laughs> yeah. So I sat down with some friends. We had a little um, party one evening in Jackson, and we got the Jackson phone book, and we used it to, to come up with other names <laughs> for the characters. <laughs> Just pulled them out of the phone book. <laughs> or mixed and matched, you know? And I think the names suit the characters. and um, But that's the way that went. So... Yeah, that's the only way I know how to write is to base it on my actual experience. Yeah. I mean, who knows how much, I mean, that's kind of fiction in a way, anyhow, but, um, and then just embroider and elaborate and expand on upon that so it becomes fictionalized. But it's not true fiction, so I just call it unfiction. Unfiction, yeah. yeah. It's, it's catchy. Yeah. It's, it's the kind of thing that an interviewer is going to is going to ask you about. Fiction. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I don't think I'm a, uh, the originator of that term. Okay. I think other people have yeah, used prob- it, but yeah. uh, probably in a better way or different way. I don't know. It's just yeah. In that vein, the main character, the narrator, the unre- the unreliable narrator as you say in the book is named Marlo. That's 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 the name you go by as well. Which is not my real name. Not your real either, name. Right. It's a nickname. Yeah. It's a nickname for the main character as well. Correct. That comes from the character, the narrator of Heart of Darkness, Joseph Conrad's 
great book, you know, some consider it the greatest short novel ever written. At least in at least in the old days when it was a white man's canon, things have changed now, and so I don't know where Heart of Darkness. The stands. best white guy book ever yeah, written. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. <laughs> That'd be fun if we'd yeah. call it like that. Uh, <laughs> most people are familiar with the story because of the movie Apocalypse Now, right. which is loosely based on the, the right. same novel. And um, but I was, I used uh, Conrad's formatting as a kind of model to write initially, you know, to. So the narrator goes into some sort of exotic place, has an intense experience, and then extracts himself and then writes his story. Yeah. And he writes it in a conversational way, which is the way Heart of Darkness is written, also conversational. Um, and I uh, never, my real name is Mike, and I never really cared for it. It was just so common amongst my generation that yeah. when a friend started calling me Marlo, I just kind of went with that. And so that's become my name now. When did they start calling you Marlo and how? It was actually a guy I was working with at a cannery in Alaska who couldn't remember. He was trying to remember my last name, and he thought it was Melbourne or Marlowe. And then just suddenly a bell went off, and I thought, Marlowe, maybe I should just go with that instead of Mike. More distinctive. Yeah, it is. And uh, my last name is Mewborn, spelled with an M, not an N. A common name in the Piedmont region of Virginia, but okay. not very common elsewhere. And no. it's often misspelled and mispronounced. So I'm changing my nom de plume to Mars, Mars short for Marlo, Mars Radcon. Radcon is Conrad with the syllables. Ha ha ha, Radcon, a spoonerism. So, yeah. Or so something. That, something. Yeah. Uh, so that, I'm just going to go with that now. What is it? Radcon is the last name and the first name is what? Mars. Mars Radcon. You know, I've gone by Marlo for 30 years. I, it often gets shortened to Mars as sure. a kind of nickname of a nickname. So I'm going to go with Mars. <laughs> That's awesome. That's a, a recent shift. How know? does that feel to shift your name? To I mean, Changing your name is so intense. It's like it, it, feel, it feels like it needs to be symbolically significant. And to do it at this uh, stage of your life, no offense, must feel strange. It's a little, no, I, well, it's a little strange, but I was used to the Marlowe shift. I lived on a... A commune for a while in Virginia. For three years, I lived at a place called Twin Oaks Community. It's one of the last remaining of the back the land communes of the late 60s. Still going strong. 100 people, wow. 20 kids. It was based on, um, originally on uh, Walden II, a B.F. BF Skinner's utopian novel, Walden II. It's deviated quite a bit from the philosophy that the book uh, is premised on, but. Um, because there's no uh, charismatic leader, there's no official religion, it's uh, labor sharing, income sharing, egalitarian, uh, consensus decision making. Those are the things that have allowed Twin Oaks to prosper where other communes of that sort foundered. Yeah, there's, and, no, there's no leader on top who gets that text with all the women. Correct. Um, so why even have a commune at all? You, you know what I mean? Wonder, yeah. It, yeah, but the, well, there were orgies and, <laughs> and uh, days when everyone oh, thank God. and dropped acid. So, you oh, know, great. So oh, there perfect. are some of the vestiges of the old <laughs> 60s commune life. But, but mainly it's just a, an interesting experiment in living in uh, adults, smart, well-read, educated adults trying to figure out what do people really need to be happy? Yeah. How much work, how much leisure, how much privacy, how much community? children not children um and it was great and it held me for three years during an era when i was i stayed nowhere for three years it was just uh and i would probably still be there if it was located out west and not in 
the Piedmont of Virginia. Okay, so that, was that the first venture out? Because I'm so curious as how's that, how you end up going from Virginia. How does this whole thing start? How do you become this person? It really started because I, uh, <laughs> I originally went to the Air Force Academy in uh-huh. high school, Colorado. <laughs> My father was a pilot okay. and an Air Force officer. I don't know. I wasn't that into flying, but I got a presidential appointment from Nixon. He only appointed 100 guys to go. So wow. I took the appointment. To go to, to the Air Force Academy? In okay. Colorado Springs. And that's something you apply for, yeah, and then you get a presidential appointment. Or you could get a congressional, I think, or a senatorial. Oh, wow. Okay. You have to have an appointment from a, an elected representative. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's the way it works. At all the military academies, West Point or Naval Academy. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I went, and I wasn't a very good fit. Uh, and I, I was the first... <laughs> I was the first cadet to successfully go AWOL from the Air Force Cadet. <laughs> Congratulations. By successful, I mean I got away with it. <laughs> I left in the middle of the night. I was there for about eight months, nine months, and increasingly unhappy. Okay. I enjoyed basic training, but I didn't enjoy the academic year. And I so wasn't it was that the, it was the school it was the it was the school part of it that you didn't correct. That's, wow. Yeah. I Not the militarism and because I'm seeing you as a hippie, proto hippie. Yeah, well, that came later, but, yeah, you know, I was raised in a military environment. Okay. And uh, I had no trouble functioning. I had run cross-country in high school, so I had no trouble with all the running and the athletics. And maybe I should have joined the Marines instead of gone to the Air Force Academy, but I went to the Air Force. And once the academic year started, I was not happy. Why not? I'm not really happy in classrooms and sitting at desks. I'm a studious person, and I read a lot, and I, you know, have my sort of quasi-academic discipline, but I was not, I don't know. You know, you, you go to a place like that when you're 18, it's very rigorous, and you owe five years to the Air Force after you leave, so there's your first decade of your young adulthood. Right. And I just wasn't ready to go down that road. Yeah, yeah. You know, I just thought life had more possibilities. And I couldn't explain it to my family. I was such an easygoing, compliant kid that I just, I had, I had no vocabulary for, or no way to articulate why I was unhappy or what I would even do next. So my choice was to just leave in the middle of the night. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I escaped to Garden City, Kansas. Okay. Just a place I picked on the map (laughs) because it sounded good. How'd you get there? Took a bus out of Sea Springs and um, was um, there for six months working different manual labor jobs and they, they i'm sure you got a call or something well they can't call no, you I, well yeah well how what happens i was on an fbi wanted list and they had an <laughs> apbs out and i uh a wall i actually had bought a motorcycle so i i drove it back to the academy at one point thinking i would turn myself in but i was just too free and too enjoying just being on my own that's a hell of an origin story so you yeah you so, so that you was left it. on that a was, motorcycle yeah yeah so that was leaving the fold for the first time you know i did eventually go back to a regular college okay and i can attribute that experience to being exposed to a lot of writers i switched from business to english major and i read heart of darkness and that was it for me i could uh, that story so put its hook in me that i could no longer really go back to class and I just waffled a little bit, and finally I just dropped out, and I came west, and I worked in Yellowstone. What about the What about the book? Do you think uh, got its hooks in you so so clearly? Well, it was partly the narrator's voice. It was the idea of 
exotic travel, going somewhere yeah. beyond civilization's grip, you know, and going into a realm where relative morality begins to have its play, and and then and then writing writing a piece of literature based on that experience. It just seemed like the perfect model for how to go about it. Was Conrad writing from experience? Yeah, he had. Yeah, he had been a steam steamboat captain okay. on the Congo and encountered ivory traders and. Yeah, it's based loosely on his okay. experiences. There you go. The Congo, right? So, so he's your number one. Great. He's I your guy. Yeah, he's yeah. my guy. And um, Rad Khan. Of course, it took a number of years to find my own voice and find a method. It was quite a bit of floundering and experimenting. It took another ten years before I began to write in the way I write. You know. And, and at that point, it, you're in your thirties. I was thirty. You're thirty, and yeah. you are you. Uh, and you had been to Alaska at that point, because your main your main character. Correct. I'd been up there twice at that point, but yeah, the island despair, living on the island. Working the canneries and then being a pizza cook, yeah. So you were a pizza cook because you write very extensively. I, I I cracked this open. I was ready for like a travelogue, a real like a sort of like you know I, I went here, I went there, I met this person, I met that person. I learned a lot about pizza kitchens and how they work. Maybe more than you ever wanted and to know. I was, but, I was yeah. very I was very surprised, but yeah. the way you write about it is like so. I mean, obviously you've done it. Otherwise, you wouldn't have have the detail of the ovens and the prep work. And I hope it wasn't overwritten. It was it? Yeah, okay. It wasn't. I was surprised. Right. I mean, like, I I tore through it, and I was. It surprised me, honestly. Like, if you had told me I was going to be reading this much about pizza cooking, I wouldn't have believed yeah, you. It's an Alaska story, sure. Yeah, exactly, right. Alaska right. story. Right. But I I like the idea that it was that this this pizza place is sort of a. Uh, holdout from the lower 48. It's like a taste of home for the tourists and uh, a, a bit of normalcy for the people who have been there a long time, a bit of Americana, like you're still in America even though you're up here among the Tlingit and the native people and you're you know under all this you know nature stress. You still have the pizza. Yes. It <laughs> also symbolizes the colonization of the cultural colonization. Yes. The creeping culture of the lower 48 convenience culture creeping into the bush communities and basically obviating what was there before, you know, the, the white person bush community, but also the, the native, the aborigine, yeah. you know, which was already decimated by that point, but, but slowly there, it was being totally paved over by... Paved yeah. over. Yeah. And I just read, I read some Edward Abbey at your suggestion as well. I'm reading Desert Solitaire right yeah. now. And he has a polemic against the sort of like the paving of the roads in the national parks and how, and who it brings in and, and who we're catering to and what we're erasing. You know, what, what are we getting um, for what we're giving up? Yes, right. Yeah, yeah, good. Um, thank you very much. Uh, so, um, okay, so Alaska... Where 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 are we at? In your, okay, no no, I want to go back. Well, I there was the going AWOL. Thank and then, you. And then kind of being talked into going back to college by your parents. Yeah, that's what parents yeah. do. That's what parents do, and they and wanted the best well, for you. And it was yeah. <laughs> even though I ended up dropping out of that school too, I was there two years. And which school was this? Roanoke College in Salem, Virginia. Okay, back to Virginia. Yeah. It, I think that year it made Playboy magazine's top ten party school. And list. it still couldn't hold you. Yeah, maybe not. Yeah, no, it couldn't. It still couldn't uh, hold you. But it also had a very strong English department. It was known for that. And I just fortuitously lucked into that situation and was uh, had a couple of good professors who 
exposed me to a lot of great writing. Steinbeck and Conrad and Hemingway and, you know, the whole, the old white man. Canon, <laughs> the white know. guy does. Yeah, I was just going to say. I hope that's all changed now, and I believe it has. <laughs> it but, has, certainly, yeah. But um, <laughs> that's the way it was then in 70s, late 70s. Late 70s. Yeah, right. And uh, I dropped out. I had a contract to work in Yellowstone Park. And having nothing else to do, I came out west and worked there, and that opened up that whole life of seasonal work and travel and wilderness and crazy romances and and supporting some sort of artistic endeavor. Yeah, I ran into Bohemians that um, were doing that, and I thought this is it. This is the way to go. And I have basically been doing that for the last forty years. So yeah, okay. So yeah, I'm curious as to where this yeah this started. You got a, you ride a recumbent bicycle with your dog. You're living in a cave. You're living camping in a hostel, mm -hmm. and it seems to be all in service of this sort of traveling deliberately, sort of uh, being in it, experiencing it. Yeah, you know, some people would probably have trouble with my definition or my use of the term travel because I usually go somewhere and stay put for a while and get below the surface, and it's partly not to service the um, stories or the writing, it's just my nature to, if I get somewhere and it kind of works and it's interesting and there's uh, some mild adventure to it or happenstance and it keeps my interest, I'll, I'll stay for a while. Yeah. Uh, I don't travel the way most people imagine, you know, just relentlessly moving. There's There's been plenty of that, but um, this, the novels tend to come out of the places where I've stayed put for six months or or years. Yeah, you, right. the, the Marlowe of the novels, he only intends to stay there in Alaska for a summer. He stays over the winter, and he doesn't like it, and he goes, I can't do another winter, but he's, he's there all summer, yeah. and he almost stays for another winter. Yeah, almost, so 18 months. Yeah. Yeah, right. Um, I'm trying to think. In this story, Geyser Rush, it starts in Oregon where the narrator reads... Peter Jenkins' great book, A Walk Across America, which was a very influential book to people who were young back in the 70s. You know, a disenchanted young guy uh, who was in college during the Watergate Vietnam era and just couldn't, nothing seemed relevant, so he dropped out of school, got a sponsorship from National Geographic, and walked across America. It took him three years, and halfway across, he met his is then or the woman that became his wife she walked the rest she of the walked way. with him yeah from new orleans to the <laughs> coast but a couple of books came out of that uh which um the narrator of geyser Rush thinks well that's great i'll just i'll try that i'll try walking i'll just hit the roads hit the roads of america and walk so there was kind of an episodic aspect to that book where he walks for a while doesn't work that great he takes a job on a fishing boat does that for a while and and then it ends up back in Yellowstone, where the thrust of the novel occurs. But there's there is some of that episodic, what we would really call travel, you know, at, at yeah. the first part. Right? This is more like more like the travel, what we think travel, of travel. Yeah, right, yeah. Um, so there's that. But yeah, generally it's the narrator stays put and uh, gets his near, you know, his uh, story from being in a place for uh, months or years but that's your that's your, that's like the under the uh under the headline of your website it says something like that like uh, other if you're not doing this you're just sightseeing it's like if you're not something traveling deliberately you're just sightseeing i think yeah if you're uh yeah there, there's little <laughs> little pop quiz little, little bits in the on the website if 
If you're not being changed by your travel, then it's just sightseeing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And right. you need to stay long enough to be changed. Right. And I like the idea of embedding yourself in like the economy and the and your main character in in that book kind of feels himself being more and more embedded in this sort of seedy underbelly of this town, even though he feels morally above it. He's not he's trying to be in it and not of it, but he ends up seeing a, a, a path in his life where he could be sucked into the sort of undercurrent of this town, even though he's not, quote-unquote, one of those people. He feels himself being Well stated. I, that's a good in. rendering of, of the plot. Right, and he doesn't want to stay there any longer. He's got to get out. He's got to, he's got to leave this island, right? And even, I mean, even when he, because his love interest, even if he, even in the projected future in which he gets his love interest out of there into some other place like Seattle or the other town in Alaska, he says, and I'd stay there for a few years until she got okay and I'd move on. So he doesn't even, he isn't even saying he promises to be with this woman forever. He just wants to get her out of the place she's at, kind of set her up somewhere else and then continue. So he's that devoted to moving on. That even when he's conceiving his next step, he's saying, "I'll be there for a couple of years, but I'm not going to." He stay. knows his nature that it, it, it won't. He won't stick for a while. Yeah. He knows he'll. He could do it for 18 months or sometime, and then yeah, he'll have to go. And you say his nature, but you do mean your nature to an extent. It's also my nature. Yeah. Right. Yeah, which is also true. I can never. I don't know. Moab's kind of got its hooks in me right now. Yeah. How long and, you been uh, here? A year. Okay. And um. But you've been in Utah for a couple of years, no, right? No, not really. I mean, I was in and out of Moab for 30 years, okay. you know, just uh, after reading Ed Abbey and uh, checking it out. I used to have an office over here on Main Street uh, for the filmmaking stuff, but once that kind of didn't happen, uh, and then Moab was getting a little bit gentrified and rents were going up, I, I dropped it. But I used to come here in the winters. I would spend summers in Jackson Hole working for the airlines out at the airport. Oh, cool. American Airlines. And then and then the dog and I would ride down. You know, it would take a month to get down here and spend the winter. And I camped in the office some. Sometimes I camped other places. But I had the office. You could live in the office? Oh, yeah, you're you not could. really. <laughs> yeah, you could then. A number of us were. They've, they've clamped down on that. Yeah. Moab's becoming a little more straight-laced. Yeah. All the time is, even as we speak. But there were a number of winters here. Suffice it to say, a, lot, a number of winters spent here. Yeah. And but, you were saying that the, the hostel you're at is sort of a hearkening back to the hippie days of Moab. Yeah, Moab, you know, it went through its uh, uranium boost, boom, and then that busted. And then a lot of hippies and artists move in because real estate was cheap. After and the boom? Because there's no the more boom, industry. Yeah, yeah. There was, and, um, and you could also just live outdoors easy. And the town was small and quiet, and there was lots of... When I first came here... In the late 80s, I hitched up here from Tucson just to check it out. I was able to, well, it was open, dispersed camping along the river. It was just a crazy, <laughs> wild scene. H hundreds and hundreds of people all along the miles of riverfront. And With no regulation or no anything? No regulation, nothing. And uh, it was just a massive, endless party. And uh, it was too much for me. I stayed out there a couple of days. It was just, it was noisy. I couldn't sleep. So I hitched back into town. I was able to pitch a tent right on Main Street, <laughs> and I stayed for a week. No one cared. No one even noticed. But that's you would be arrested within ten minutes. <laughs> you know, that's just for a week. Change, yeah, on for Main a, Street. Kind of back, you yeah. know, in the bushes a little bit, <laughs> but not. I made no effort to be really concealed. It just no one cared. Yeah. Yeah, that's how quiet. And those days are over now. Yeah, things are those, <laughs> well over. You can hardly find a place, you know, 
anywhere within town limits where you can do that. Yeah. I know a couple of guys who do, but and they won't even tell you where they're camped. <laughs> it's so uh, difficult yeah. and rare commodity to find a campsite. But yeah, I don't, I'm happy with the way I'm camping now. I don't need to squat in the bush out there, but yeah, this, yeah, this is fine. Uh-huh. But so there's been some relationship with Moab off and on, but I've now been here one year continuously. Okay. And have gone through the heat of the summer, and it's not that bad. And we'll see. I may stick around. Yeah. Because the I, cave's a good situation. The guy doesn't mind. Good the guy, for the summers. Good for the summers. Hostel's good for the winters. Nice. I'm doing some volunteering with uh, some of us guys. We go around and we collect excess food from places and distribute it. It's called free meal. And that's pretty fun. And it's the virus kind of put a damper on it. But sure. we think it'll kick back up once yeah. we. Yeah. Well, there's, people are still serving food. Yeah, 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 yeah. We're still able to do it. I just do it a couple of days a week. It's very low commitment. It's a couple hours each, each, each of those days, you know, to pick up stuff. And where do you think you're gonna go next? If there's next, you know, I, I don't have a burning desire. I would. I've been thinking about Slab City, in California. Yeah, where um, uh, the kid from uh, yeah, Chris McCandless, yeah. yeah, Chris McCandless, thanks. Um, I've, I honestly don't have a whole lot of curiosity about anywhere else. I've wow. kind of run myself dry <laughs> at this point. That's the way it is. What Slab City, uh, what, what appeal does that have for you? Well, it's, um, I like the leveling effect of that place. Uh, everyone who's there, there's only maybe about five people who actually stay year-round. Everyone else is a visitor. Okay. I like places where everyone is meeting on a sort of equal footing, no matter what their demographic or level of affluence. I'm intrigued by places like that. And I'm intrigued by places that are kind of sort of post-apocalyptic, <laughs> like a, a, a little feeling of our future or what things could come to. I'm intrigued by places where people bottom out, too. I think that's interesting existentially to I mean that's kind of what drew me to Petersburg and some places in, in Alaska. Alaska yeah where people are making one last effort to <laughs> salvage their life uh, some of that doesn't come out in Island Despair so much it, it, there's more of that in Wet Exit the second book but I, I'm drawn to places like that as was Conrad he liked you know he yeah. liked to go where human nature is starkly revealed because all the props and the facades are stripped away I like that um, and yeah, what 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 about that? What about what about what about the? Uh, I mean, you said that we might be headed there. Is that what you think? Do you have that kind of pessimistic view of the human experiment with capitalism and with uh, the American experiment? I just uh, I don't think I'm too off base thinking that we're that we're in we're already in a kind of a downfall. You know, yeah. uh, we've got environmental problems and. The virus isn't really the result of our, well, it's not a part of the same things that contribute to climate change, although the virus is probably attributable to overdevelopment, overpopulation, hypermobility. Yep. Those are some things that also contribute to our other environmental degradation. So it's all tied in, I guess. But I just think I worry about the ocean uh, ecosystems collapsing. I guess there's already dead zones and huge areas of plastic and there's die-offs of large fish species and if the oceans start to collapse it's not going to be so good for the terrestrial life forms yeah, either man. you know and things could cascade i don't really see a uh, calamitous 
downfall. I see more of a slow grinding as things <laughs> just kind of yep. give out. You know, yep. we just try to cope and deal and and probably a big adjustment in human populations and yeah. other species. You yeah. Know, um, extinction crisis. Yeah, I just there it is i don't fun stuff i don't know why one person a person wouldn't look at those things squarely and say yeah this is kind of where yeah. we're headed we can ameliorate we can do what we can to stave off some yeah of this triage the situation triage, but, but <laughs> it seems that uh, but we're headed to we're so all gonna places be like slap city seem yeah. like a foretaste yeah 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 you know let's get ready for it yeah right. let's get our cooking ware ready let's get our propane cooking ware and our our non-gasoline uh transportation and uh, let's get it all set and for also the end. our social structures yeah things you begin to get a glimpse of how people might cooperatively uh, deal with some of the crises yeah i don't know i just yeah those are all factors yeah i want to ask you about the uh in the in the book, the main character has a code he's always referring to. He's building his code. He's living by his code. He keeps referring to this code and whether or not he's living by it or not. Um, what is your code? What is his code? What are you talking about here with this like code of ethics, way of living? It's a little bit exaggerated in the book. It's not really my code. It's this the narr you know, I uh, give it to the narrator. It um. I guess it was something I kind of lived by a little bit when I was younger, and I had a sense of obligation to employers who took me on to, to yeah, you know, he wants to to, to give do, back, yeah, do my job, learn it, and then give them some return for all the effort they put into me. I think I think that still operates in my life. You know, I'm I'm no longer working a day job. You know, I'm on the Social Security, so now I write full time. In fact, I went to Colorado at age 60 because I could qualify for the senior pension plan so I could more readily quit the day job <laughs> full time because all you had to do was be poor, be 60 years old and having and be in Colorado for be five Colorado. minutes. Five minutes. Yeah. <laughs> or as long as it took you to go down and sign up. That's great. And it worked out fine. It wasn't a scam. It's just what they have because Colorado is very progressive that way. So I did that for two years. And... Um, and found that the place I was living, Fruta, I wasn't a particularly good fit, and so came back to Moab. Fruta, Colorado? Yeah. Yeah, I read it. I, okay, I googled you, and I found one of the results was uh, the story, story in Fruta about the forest fire. The Skipper Island fire. Skipper Island fire, yeah. which which I think does speak to your code, because um, you, if I don't know if you don't mind talking well, about I don't it. Mind. No, no, um, it's an interesting episode. For for, sure. yeah. <laughs> what I read was... Uh, it was like local, I don't know if they called you a vagrant or some some sort of Homeless thing. Homeless guy. Homeless guy, which is derogatory, um, uh, admits to starting Forest Fire, and you're very sad about it. Yeah, I was. Um, the basic outline of the incident, I was hiking with my dog down along the river in a place called Skipper Island, which is not really an island. There's a slew of the Colorado River that peels off a portion of the land. It doesn't flow all year this slough but at periods of time it is a, it does create an island and it's called skipper island some friends and i thought that it was blm it is listed as blm land we had gone to the county assessor's website and it was listed as blm so we were beginning to think we could camp there and we had slept there a couple of nights and then i was hiking with flicks i took a bathroom break and i was burning some toilet paper and it got away from me. I was—I didn't leave it. I just was right there watching it, and I could not put it out. 
that area's undergone a tremendous drought. And they had, oh, I don't know, people will be familiar with the, the saga of the tamarask, an invasive species that within, within that uh, inundated all these canyons in the southwest. It, I think it's Asian, an Asian bush or something. Okay. And then we introduced a beetle, which would feed on the, the tamarask, and it was supposed to just move at a, a mile a year, but if, the beetle just went crazy too. So we've got canyons full of masses of amounts of tamarask fuel. Anyway, that was... What do you mean fuel? Like it's so dry? Yeah, it's so dry, yeah. It's fuel for fires. Right. Right, and um, it's a problem. So my little toilet paper burning started the tamarisk on fire, which is like, I think it's full of some kind of resin or something that burns like kerosene, you know? Yeah. Anyway, I was, I couldn't, I was right there and I couldn't put it out. If I'd gone crazy on it with, you know, and sacrificed my boots, I could have probably put it out. But by that time I realized that I should do that, it was too late. And I tried to get water from the river. I tried a number of things and I realized I'm not gonna be able to put this thing out. So I called 911 and I said, my name is Mike Mewborn. I accidentally started a fire. I need some help. I'll meet the fire crew at mile such and such on the interstate. So I hiked on up about three miles, met the crew. They showed up, but they wouldn't go in. They, they were balky for some reason. They wanted to drive in, as yeah, the article said, but they, you yeah, wanted to get them to come in and help. Yeah, That's what I, really a couple of guys and some shovels and we could have contained it yeah. or maybe even put it out, but they just... I don't know. They were just reluctant. And they did eventually send a crew in, but the fire was out of control by then. The next day was the windiest day of the spring. Uh, the fire became a massive conflagration. I mean, it, it never burned like some of these Colorado fires. I think it burned over about 200 acres, but all it burned was a tamarisk. It it killed a couple of the, the big cottonwoods, but most of them survived. Okay, it good. It was just a fast-moving brush fire. It a, but it did jump the interstate, so the interstate got shut down. Wow. They diverted all interstate traffic through the town of Fruta. <laughs> and then the power went out. It was actually cut preemptively as a precaution. And I was downtown. I'd actually gone into my camp and extracted all my gear and my friend's gear and was in downtown Fruta drinking a cup of coffee, watching all the interstate traffic being diverted down the ramp, the massive cloud of smoke that looked like, you know, a nuclear bomb had gone off just west of us. And the power's out, so everybody's out milling around. The grocery store's shut, everything's shut. <laughs> and I saw a news crew in the parking lot filming all this for uh, news out of Grand Junction. And I said, well, if they're still there when I get done with this cup of coffee, I'll go give them a statement. And I did. I walked up to them and uh, they said, can we help you? And I said, well, I'm the guy who started the Skipper <laughs> Island fire. If you'd like a statement, I'll give you one. And um, boy, they had me mic'd up with the cameras turned around in 30 seconds. I was ready to go. And I warned them, I may start crying because I'm pretty distraught about this whole yeah. thing. And, uh, and I didn't sleep much last night. And they said, it's all right. You know, we'll... They're loving it. They'd be great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were all, yeah, that would be more drama. Yeah, they want the tears. And I did get kind of choky, choked up, but um, I just said, you know, I'm very sorry for all the trouble. I didn't mean to do it. It was an accident. I was burning some toilet paper, and it got out of control, and hopefully the crews will get in there. And actually, at that moment, they were had sent a tanker out to do uh, fire suppression. You know, they they extract water from a pond or something, and then it was a helicopter tanker. Okay, tanker. So yeah. they were already doing 
drops and it was getting under control and by the next day it was out a very expensive operation uh but that's what they chose to do the fire crews weren't having much luck it was just kind of the wind and everything so they brought in the heavy artillery and got it done and uh but then i was on the hook for it you know and uh had to get it legally public. legally yeah I, that's what happens out west they they find the person that started it and then wow. they're prosecuted wow yeah that's the way it goes so you could have dodged it. This is your code. You could have dodged it. You could have. You could have yeah, not I done anything. Yeah, I dodged it, but um, it's just not my nature. I actually thought that if I owned up to what I did, I thought maybe the fire crew would own up to their culpability, their failure to go in. And, and they just, did. No, they yeah, didn't step forward. So. Yes, not. You know, I didn't think so. Yeah. But my public defender was able to get a hold of the tapes. You know they. When you uh, interact with a fire crew at their vehicle, it's all taped. Plus the uh, your your actual conversation, actual conversation wow. with the fire crew, as well as the, my conversation with the dispatcher. So she was able to show that I that yes, I started the fire and that was my responsibility. But I from then on, I tried to be a you know a responsible citizen and report it, and and that it was the fire crew's hesitation and reluctance to go in. And so I got off with just some community service and a small fine. Nice. Yeah. That's a good lawyer. She was good. She was a public defender and new to the um, job, so she still had energy, and yeah. a lot of those people burn out. <laughs> yeah, that's the key. <laughs> tough <laughs> tough uh, job, not much pay, but Get someone young. she did a good job. Yeah. And I was very pleased, and I had my day in court, and uh, it was fine. And I was facing a uh, Chevron Oil owns a lot of the land along the river. They use it to excess water for their operations and some of the fire had encroached on their property and they oh were no what will chevron do will they chevron were, be okay they were yeah guess what they uh they wanted me to pay them a hundred thousand dollars <laughs> come yeah, on yeah. but after the public defender dug up uh the defense they dropped the suit they realized they were going to have to probably go after the city fire department yeah who was equally culpable so that's the way it went i it was an interesting thing and uh it kept me in Fruita longer than I probably would have stayed. I, uh, you know, these the the wheels of justice grind slowly. So yeah, it took right? six months before I was finally had my final hearing, and then I had a, a winter's work worth of community service, which was actually quite fun. I went down and worked with the city crew, the guys that dig the ditches and the sewers, and um, and they just gave me all kinds of jobs that were, you know, it was good. It was kind of a lack of volunteer opportunities anyway in Fruita, so that was my volunteering. There for you the go. Winter. So I. That was interesting. Yeah, I mean, I respect. I really respect the uh, like owning up to it, and like you were, you seemed like you were like legitimately regretful of like you you really regretted not not being able to help and fix the and fix the fire faster. True. There's another component to that. You know, all these canyons they probably need a fire. We've been suppressing fires in the West. Everyone knows the problems with right. the fuel loads building up. That fire is a natural part of the cycle, and then we just don't do that because we have too many human habitations and structures. So that canyon or that um, riverfront benefited from the fire. Of course. It cleaned out all that tamarisk, and it kicked off all kinds of natural cycles that had been, you know, kind of uh, held it in check because of it. So I don't have any regrets. So you're welcome. That. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. They should probably have paid me to do yeah, it. Yeah, how about $100,000? But I'm dollars. sorry for the trauma it put everybody through. <laughs> you know, it really was scary. Yeah. And it scared people. And uh, there was a moment when they thought they were going to have to evacuate Fruta. You know, the fire wow. was 
moving towards town rapidly, you know, blown by westerly winds. And uh, that you know, was scary. And I'm sorry for that. And I'm sorry for the expense that they had to do in order to protect the town and yeah. farms and ranches and stuff. So, yeah, that's you know, wouldn't wasn't my choice to to have it go down like that. But it was an interesting article. I think it was very telling of your character and of the of the code that you seem to live by, that you owned up to it and you were very sorry and you're legitimately emotionally affected by having done that. Um, and people responded to that. Um, Good. I you weren't a pariah in Fruta, the man who started the no, fire? No. No. Um, it was confusing to a lot of people who wanted to script it a certain way. They wanted to see it as a homeless guy who got drunk and let his campfire get away. Yeah. But the narrative ran contrary to that, and I got a little bit of, little bit of bad vibe from folks who didn't know what to make of me. Frankly, I was just such a alien creature in their environment. They they don't have a lot of homeless there or guys on bikes, and they just don't have much of that. Yeah. it's a conservative ranching community. But I had some uh, people come up. I had a father come up to me with tears in his eyes and say. My son and I were watching you on news, the news last night, and I was telling my son, see, you should take responsibility for errors or things that you do. See what that guy did? Yeah. And he said, I just want to thank you for being straight ahead. Yeah, that guy writing and, a check for $100,000 to Chevron Oil. That guy's yeah, that, the... That guy. <laughs> and uh, I had that response from a couple of people, and I was, yeah, I, I, mean, I was just doing what I felt I had to do, but yeah. I'm just saying that I wasn't a pariah, you know, that people were sorry. A lot of people were just sorry I went through it. Yeah. And they said, many of them said, well, you started the fire, you stood up and took your medicine. Good on you. But oh, yeah. Maybe don't camp down there anymore. I sort of <laughs> lost all legitimacy as an outdoors person. So, don't camp down there anymore. So I, I didn't do that anymore. It brings up an interesting point, though, about how, the way people perceive you and interact with you. Okay? As someone who, who, who doesn't have a home that they rent or that they live in, um, you seem very comfortable with that fact, and obviously there's a, there's a stigma around homelessness, as people would call it. How are you dealing with that here in Moab and in other places that you've lived? Well, Moab is much more tolerant of people who camp. It's just sort of part of the town's culture and yeah. past and so forth. Uh, nevertheless, there is a growing stigma against those who don't live indoors or don't rent or have a habitation. Um, people are free to live any way they want. I find that living that way is stultifying. I, I do better the more I'm outdoors. And if I'm camping, you know, I'm sleeping in a tent or, you know, sleeping in a cave. But nevertheless, I'm getting more exposure to natural forces and weathers and systems and nature and all kinds of things you don't even imagine are going to happen that, that just i'm better off the more i do that so i don't really care what people think yeah and, uh, and i push back on it quite a bit i say you know a lot of people maybe would be happier this way it's certainly lower carbon uh oh, for way, everybody. way yeah. to live you know yeah and uh and for the bohemian the person whose life is organized around an artistic pursuit and we're in competition with all the rest of the culture for the things we need to live. It's a, it is one answer. You can live more cheaply if you live, if you camp, yeah. live in a place where you can get around by bike. And it gives you a little edge up 
against all the folks who have nothing that compelling going on and they're free to work a job full time because there's nothing pulling at them, no other pursuit that they'd rather you know be after. So that's the always been the plight of the bohemian. Yeah, you yeah you're, when you're reclaiming your time, when you're not, you're not selling your time to an employer, you're reclaiming your own time for your artistic pursuits. Correct. Yeah. In addition to that kind of lifestyle, actually being, I mean, it is harder and there's more hardship, but it's, you know, I often think about the term authenticity, you know, what's authentic, what's authentic goes back to how we lived when we were more Aboriginal and we had to deal with landscape and weather and climate and seasons and our own physicality. That's what's the closer you get to that state, the more authentic you are living. Yeah. And I find the closer I get to that state, the, just the happier I am, the more engaged I am. So, yeah, I don't expect to. Well, you know, when I hit, <laughs> I'm on the list for senior housing in Moab. Nice. And they called me about a, a year ago and said, well, we've got some availability. And I said, you know, could you call me again in about 10 years? <laughs> I'm, just, I'm not ready, you know, to go. Because once you go into that box, man, that's it's over. 10 years. You get that's weak great. and you lose your uh, chops, you know. So not not now, not now. Not now. Maybe in my 70s. Yeah, okay. I might be Seven ready more for that. years, we'll talk. Yeah. 10 more years. 10 more years. 73. As long, as long as I can do it. Yeah, man. You know? It keeps you strong and vital and, you know, I don't know why more people don't do it, honestly. Really? Yeah. I think even, on, even on a cold day, cold night? You don't think about a house? No. <laughs> but, but I take measures. You know, I have insulation and good clothes, and I have my, my different heating systems. Yeah. I, I'm not into hardship. It's funny. People often think that if you don't go the, the furnished house route, then you must you have to go all the way and just sleep on bare ground or something. <laughs> like, no, there's, there's lots of good gear out there, and, you know, there's good systems, and you don't need to be uncomfortable. I mean, there's always going to be discomforts, but you know what? It's there's no sin in being uncomfortable, despite what everyone in this culture tells you. Uh, Americans yeah. are not into it. Yeah, and uh, it's not what drives the market. Uh, but to seek maximum comfort at all times, you know, that's probably not the way to go. A little not. discomfort is okay. Of course, honestly. Yeah, it won't kill you. Yeah, <laughs> and it might even make you feel more alive. I think you're right. Yeah. It's, As a guy, I slept in the van uh, last night. Yeah, and uh, it was very cold. You know. I'm really encouraged by uh, your generation going with the van life. Well, you know what it is, is that we're broke. Uh, fine. <laughs> There's but, no prospect. Yeah, yeah. Which is kind of the bohemian's dilemma a yeah, little yeah. bit. But uh, aren't you also learning that... You know, there's something to this. Absolutely. As yeah. opposed to working like a, a shit job or like having like one of my friends is like just like working, you know, over Zoom in your own house, just trapped oh. in an apartment in New yeah. York City. Oh, my yeah. God. People in New York right now, it's like it's, it seems miserable. Um, and uh, to me, it felt it was like the only it was the only option. It's the only thing I could I could think of to do right now is just like travel around. Um, and I'm very grateful for the opportunity to be able to do that. Yeah. Um, thanks to some money from the government. Yep. Um, well, yeah, that's 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 about all the time of years I want to take. Um, I um, want to point people to your website, traveldeliberately.com. Yes, thank you. Yeah, mm -hmm. and you can you can donate there, and some and any any it's a sliding scale donation for the books. Sliding scale, you know. Um, you can read the books for free as a PDF. You don't need to don't buy. Don't even tell. You're such a bad businessman. 
you know, I just want readership and yeah. connection. It's nice to get a little money to cover the overhead. Yeah. But that's no longer important. Yeah. You know, I, I'm. I'm fine on the money I might I make. It's, That's awesome. It's fine, yeah, mm-hmm. I really recommend Island Island Despair. I read it in in like you know five hours. I read a couple some some last night and some this morning, and I, I breezed through it. It's very well written. It's descriptive. Thank you, Terrence. It's um, great. You're very welcome. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, I really enjoyed it. I didn't plan on reading the whole thing, and then I just got drawn in. Um, yeah, Island Despair. I recommend the other uh, the other one is Wet Exit. Wet Exit. It's a kayaking term for when you. <laughs> When you flip your kayak over and you're in it, and then you egress out of the cockpit underwater. It's called a wet exit. Wet Whether exit. you're in a river or ocean, that's just a term. But it's a good metaphor for what's going on with one of the characters. Escaping. Escaping or um, thrusting themselves into life and just trusting, right? Not the narrator, but there's, it's about a woman who's reinventing herself by taking these outdoor courses. And wet exit's a good metaphor for what she's doing. And with a donation, you can get a handmade... Uh, Binding of one of these books. Correct. Handmade right. by the author, by Marlowe. Yeah. Until I get a regular publisher, this is what we're doing. <laughs> yeah, we're oh, just not the not plan A. It's plan it's plan B. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. In some ways, if even if I got a regular publisher, I'd say, Well you guys print and bind it any way you want, but I'd like to keep doing my thing yeah. for those who want that. And it's quite a it's yeah. quite a uh, it's quite a thing. It's got it's got uh, the cord as the bookmark. It's got a buckle to keep it shut. There's webbing and D-rings and like pack buckles. It's made to look like a piece of travel gear. It's an artifact. That's what I was yeah. saying. Like in this age of audiobooks and ebooks, like if you're gonna buy a physical book, it should be cool or cool looking. And and this is what I would recommend. I'd recommend buying one of these. Yeah, it, it does help it stand out. I'm I'm getting some placement in bookstores, and we'll see how that how that goes. But they're telling me it it does it gets people's attention. Yes. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, great. Anything else you want to say? Oh, no, Terrence. I really enjoyed it. Thanks Thank very much, Marlon. Thanks for your great questions. Yeah, have yeah. a good one. That was Marlo. Wow. I was so lucky to, uh, to be able to meet someone so wise and interesting. How lucky am I? Or is it that everyone uh, on this earth and in this country has the potential to be very interesting? I don't know. Maybe this is a development of the theme of the podcast. Anyway, um, uh, Marlo's book and books um, are available at traveldeliberately.com. And I would recommend getting a handmade version, which is what I, I did. um, Cause uh, um, that's what I I bought one. I bought one and I recommend it. Um, uh, Once again, the logo was designed by Rudy Schultz and the theme song uh, is from our very own Steve Gerard, who has a new musical venture called Crown Blue. Check out Crown Blue. Uh, the, the songs are amazing. Um, and thank you very much for listening. We'll catch you next time. Bye-bye.